Section 2 of Letters to a Friend by John Muir. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Fleischman. Letters from 1867. Address, Meaford, P.O., County Gray, Canada West, April 3rd, 1867. You have, of course, heard of my calamity. The sunshine and the winds are working in all the gardens of God, but I, I am lost. I am shut in darkness. My hard, toil-tempered muscles have disappeared, and I am feeble and tremulous as an ever-sick woman. Please tell the butlers that their precious sympathy has reached me. I have read your stonemason with a great deal of pleasure. I send it with this and will write my thoughts upon it when I can. My friends here are kind beyond what I can tell and do much to shorten my immense blank days. I send no apology for so doleful a note because I feel, Mrs. Carr, that you will appreciate my feelings. Most cordially, J. Muir. Sunday, April 6th, 1867. Your precious letter of the 15th reached me last night. By accident, it was nearly lost. I cannot tell you, Mrs. Carr, how much I appreciate your sympathy and all of these kind thoughts of cheer and substantial consolation which you have stored for me in this letter. I am much better than when I wrote you, can now sit up about all day and in a room partly lighted. Your doctor says the aqueous humor may be restored. How? By nature or by art? The position of my wound will be seen in this figure. Reader's note. Muir has drawn a picture of an eye with a small circle indicating the site of his wound. Picture is labeled natural size of wound, outer side, right eye. End reader's note. The eye is pierced just where the cornea meets the sclerotic coating. I do not know the depth of the wound or its exact direction. Sight was completely gone from the injured eye for the first few days and my physician said it would be ever gone. But I was surprised to find that on the fourth or fifth day, I could see a little with it. Sight continued to increase for a few days, but for the last three weeks, it has not perceptibly increased or diminished. I called in a Dr. Parvin lately, said to be a very skillful oculist and of large experience both here and in Europe. He said that he thought the iris permanently injured, that the crystalline lens was not injured, that, of course, my two eyes would not work together, and that, on the whole, my chances of distinct vision were not good. But the bare possibility of anything like full sight is now my outstanding hope. When the wound was made, about one-third of a teaspoonful of fluid, like the white of an egg, flowed out upon my fingers. Aqueous fluid, I suppose. The eye has not yet lost its natural appearance. I can see sufficiently well with it to avoid the furniture, etc., in walking through a room, can almost, in full light, recognize some of my friends, but cannot distinguish one letter from another, of common type. I would like to hear Dr. Carr's opinion of my case. When I received my blow, I could not feel any pain or faintness because the tremendous thought glared full on me that my right eye was lost. 
I could gladly have died on the spot because I did not feel that I could have heart to look at any flower again. But this is not so, for I wish to try some cloudy day to walk to the woods where I am sure some of spring's sweet fresh-born are waiting. I believe with you that nothing is without meaning and purpose that comes from a father's hand. But during these dark weeks, I could not feel this. And as for courage and fortitude, scarce the shadows of these virtues were left me. The shock upon my nervous system made me weak in mind as a child. But enough of woe. When I can walk to where fruited specimens of Climacium are, I will send you as many as you wish. I must close. I thank you all again for your kindness. I cannot make sentences that will tell how much I feel indebted to you. Please remember me to all my friends. You will write soon. I can read my letters now. Please send them in care of Osgood and Smith. Cordially, Muir. April 1867, beginning of letter missing. I have been groping among the flowers a good deal lately. Our trees are now in leaf, but the leaves, as Mrs. Browning would say, are scarce long enough for waving. The dear little conservative spring mosses have elevated their capsules on their smooth, shining shafts and stand side by side in full stature and full fashion, every ornament and covering carefully numbered and painted and sculptured as were those of their Adams and Eves, every cowl properly plated and drawn far enough down, every hood with a proper dainty slant, their fashions never changing, because ever best. Tell Allie that I would be very glad to have him send me an anemone nemorosa, question mark, and a Nataliana. They do not grow here. I wish he and Henry could visit me on Saturdays, as they used to do. The poor eye is much better. I could read a letter with it. I believe that sight is increasing. I have nearly an eye and a half left. I feel, if possible, more anxious to travel than ever. I read a description of the Yosemite Valley last year and thought of it most every day since. You know my tastes better than anyone else. I am, most gratefully, John Muir. Indianapolis, May 2nd, 1867. I am sorry and surprised to hear of the cruel fate of your plants. I have never seen so happy flowers in any other home. They lived with you so cheerfully and confidingly and felt so sure of receiving from you sympathy and tenderness in all their sorrows. How could they grow cold and colder and die without your knowing? They must have called you. Could any bedroom be so remote you could not hear? I am very sorry, Mrs. Carr, for you and them. Can your loss be repaired? Will not other flowers lose confidence in you and live like those of other people, sickly and mute, half in, half out of the body? No snow fell here Easter evening but a few wet flakes are falling here and there today. Thank you for sending the prophecy of that loving naturalist of yours. It is indeed a pleasant one, but my faith concerning its complete fulfillment is weak. 
I do not know who your other doctor is, but I am sure that when in the Yosemite Valley and following the Pacific coast, I would obtain a great deal of geology from Dr. Carr and from yourself, and that I should win the secret of many a weed's plain heart. I am overestimated by your friend. He places me in company far too honorable. But if we meet in the fields of the sunny south, I shall certainly speak to him. Tell him, Mrs. Carr, in your next, how thankful I am for his sympathy. He is one who can sympathize in full. I feel sorry for his like misfortune, and am indebted to him, through you, for so many good and noble thoughts. A little messenger met me with your letter of April 8th, when I was on my way to the woods for the first time. I read it upon a moss-clad fallen tree. You only of my friends congratulated me on my happiness in having avoided the misery and mud of March. But for the serious part of your letter, the kind of life which our plant friends have, and their relation to us, I do not know what to think of it. I must write of this some other time. In this first walk I found Erigenia, which here is ever first, and sweet little violets, and sanguinaria, and isopyrum, too, and thelictrum anemonoides were almost ready to venture their faces to the sky. The red maple was in full flower glory. The leaves below and the mosses were bright with its fallen scarlet blossoms, and the elm, too, was in flower, and the earliest willows. All this when your fields had scarce the memory of a flower left in them. I will not try to tell you how much I enjoyed in this walk after four weeks in bed. You can feel it. Indianapolis, June 9th, 1867. I have been looking over your letters and am sorry that so many of them are unanswered. My debt to you has been increasing very rapidly of late, and I don't think it can ever be paid. I am not well enough to work, and I cannot sit still. I have been reading and botanizing for some weeks, and I find that for such work I am very much disabled. I leave this city for home tomorrow, accompanied by Merrill Moores, a little friend of mine, eleven years of age. We will go to Decatur, Illinois, thence northward through the wide prairies, botanizing a few weeks by the way. We hope to spend a few days in Madison, and I promise myself a great deal of pleasure. I hope to go south towards the end of summer, and as this will be a journey that I know very little about, I hope to profit by your counsel before setting out. I am very happy with the thought of so soon seeing my Madison friends, and Madison, and the plants of Madison, and yours. I am thankful that this affliction has drawn me to the sweet fields rather than from them. Give my love to Allie and Henry and all my friends. Yours most cordially, John Muir. Roses with us are now in their grandest splendor. My address for five or six weeks from this day will be Portage City, Wisconsin. 1867. I am now with the loved of home. I received your kind letter on my arrival in Portage four weeks ago. I have delayed writing that I might be able to state when I could be in Madison. I have never seen Arethusa nor Aspidium fragrance, but I know many a meadow where Colopogon finds home. 
With us it is now in the plenitude of glory. Camptosaurus is not here, but I can easily procure you a specimen from the rocks of Owen Sound, Canada. It is there very abundant. So also is Scolopendrium. Have you a living specimen of this last fern? Please tell me particularly about the sending or bringing Calipogon or any other of our plants you wish for. I have no skill whatever in the matter. I am enjoying myself exceedingly. The dear flowers of Wisconsin are incomparably more numerous than those of Canada or Indiana. With what fervid, unspeakable joy did I welcome those flowers that I have loved so long. Hundreds grow in the full light of our opening that I have not seen since leaving home. In company with my little friend, I visited Muir's Lake. We approached it by a ravine in the principal hills that belonged to it. We emerged from the low leafy oaks, and it came in full view, all unchanged, sparkling and clear, with its edging of rushes and lilies. And there, too, was the meadow, with its brook and willows, and all the well-known nooks of its winding border, where many a moss and fern find home. I held these poor eyes to the dear scene, and it reached me once more in its fullest glory. We visited my mill pond, a very Lilliputian affair, upon a branch creek from springs in the meadow. After leaving the dam, my stream flows underground a few yards. The opening of this dark way is extremely beautiful. I wish you could see it. It is hung with a slender meadow sedge, whose flowing tapered leaves have just sufficient stiffness to make them arch with inimitable beauty as they reach down to welcome the water to the light. This, I think, is one of nature's finest pieces, most delicately finished and composed of just this quiet flowing water, sedge, and summer light. I wish you could see the ferns of this neighborhood. We have some of the finest assemblies imaginable, there is a little grassy lakelet about half a mile from here, shaded and sheltered by a dense growth of small oaks. Just where those oaks meet the marginal sedges of the lake is a circle of ferns, a perfect brotherhood of the three Osmundas, Regalis, Claytoniana, and Cinnamomia. Of the three, Claytoniana is the most stately and luxuriant. I never saw such lordly, magnificent clumps before. Their average height is not less than three and a half or four feet. I measured several fronds that exceeded five, one five feet nine inches. Their palace home gave no evidence of having ever been trampled upon. I do wish you could meet them. This is my favorite fern. I'm sorry it does not grow in Scotland. Had Hugh Miller seen it there, he would not have called Regalis the Prince of Bailich Ferns. I think that I have seen specimens of the ostrich fern in some places of Canada, which might rival my Osmunda in height, but not in beauty and sublimity. I was anxious to see Illinois prairies on my way home, so we went to Decatur, or near the center of the state, thence north by Rockford and Janesville. I botanized one week on the prairie about seven miles southwest of Pecatonica. I gathered the most beautiful bouquet there that I ever saw. I seldom make bouquets. I never saw but very few that I thought were at all beautiful. I was anxious to know the grasses and sedges of the Illinois prairies. 
and also their comparative abundance. So I walked 100 yards in a straight line, gathering at each step that grass or sedge nearest my foot, placing them one by one in my left hand as I walked along, without looking at them or entertaining the remotest idea of making a bouquet. At the end of this measured walk, my handful, of course, consisted of 100 plants, arranged in nature's own way, as regards kind, comparative numbers, and size. I looked at my grass bouquet by chance, was startled, held it at arm's length in sight of its own near and distant scenery and companion flowers. My discovery was complete, and I was delighted beyond measure with a new and extreme beauty. Here it is. Of Keluria cristata, 55. Of Agrostis scabra, 29. Of Panicum clandestinum, 7. Of Panicum depauperatum, 1. Of Stipa spartia, 7. Of Poa alsodes, 7. Of Poa pretensis, 1. Of Carex panicia, 4. Of Carex novianglia, 1. The extremely fine and diffuse purple agrostis contrasted most divinely with the taller, strict, taper-finished Keluria. The long-awned, single stipa, too, and P. clandestinum, with their broad, ovate leaves and purple, muffy pistils, played an important part. So also did the cylindrical spikes of the sedges. All were just in place. Every leaf had its proper taper and texture and exact measure of green. Only P. pretensis seemed out of place, and as might be expected, it proved to be an intruder, belonging to a field or bouquet in Europe. Can it be that a single flower or weed or grass in all these prairies occupies a chance position? Can it be that the folding or curvature of a single leaf is wrong or undetermined in these gardens that God is keeping? The most microscopic portions of plants are beautiful in themselves, and these are beautiful combined into individuals, and undoubtedly all are woven with equal care into one harmonious, beautiful whole. I have the analysis of the two other handfuls of prairie plants, which I will show you another time. We hope to be in Madison in about three weeks. To me, all plants are more precious than before. My poor eye is not better or worse. A cloud is over it. But in gazing over the widest landscapes, I am not always sensible of its presence. My love to Allie and Henry Butler and all my friends. Please tell the Butlers when we are coming. Their invitation is prior to yours, but your houses are not widely separated. I mean to write again before leaving home. You will then have all my news, and I will have only to listen. Most cordially, John Muir. Indianapolis, August 30th, 1867. We are safely in Indianapolis. I'm not going to write a letter. I only want to thank you and the doctor and all the boys for the enjoyments of the pleasant botanical week we spent with you. We saw, as the steam hurried us on, that the grand harvest of composite would be no failure this year. It is rapidly receiving its purple and gold in generous measure from the precious light of these days.
I could not but notice how well appearances in the vicinity of Chicago agreed with Le Corot's theory of the formation of prairies. We spent about five hours in Chicago. I did not find many flowers in her tumultuous streets. Only a few grassy plants of wheat and two or three species of weeds, amaranth, purslane, carpetweed, etc. The weeds, I suppose, for man to walk upon, the wheat to feed him. I saw some new algae, but no mosses. I expected to see some of the latter on wet walls and in seams in the pavement, but I suppose that the manufacturer's smoke and the terrible noise is too great for the hardiest of them. I wish I knew where I was going. Doomed to be carried of the spirit into the wilderness, I suppose. I wish I could be more moderate in my desires, but I cannot. And so there is no rest. Is not your experience the same as this? I feel myself deeply indebted to you all for your great and varied kindness. Not any the less, if from stupidity and sleepiness I forgot on leaving to express it. Farewell, J. Muir. Among the hills of Bear Creek, seven miles southeast of Burksville, Kentucky, September 9th, 1867. I left Indianapolis last Monday and have reached this point by a long, weary, roundabout walk. I walked from Louisville a distance of 170 miles, and my feet are sore, but I am paid for all my toil a thousand times over. The sun has been among the treetops for more than an hour, and the dew is nearly all taken back, and the shade in these hill basins is creeping away into the unbroken strongholds of the grand old forests. I have enjoyed the trees and scenery of Kentucky exceedingly. How shall I ever tell of the miles and miles of beauty that have been flowing into me in such measure? These lofty curving ranks of bobbing, swelling hills, these concealed valleys of fathomless verdure, and these lordly trees with the nursing sunlight glancing in their leaves upon the outlines of the magnificent masses of shade embosomed among their wide branches these are cut into my memory to go with me forever. I often thought as I went along how dearly Mrs. Carr would appreciate all this. I have thought of many things I wish to ask you about when with you. I hope to see you all again sometime when my tongue and memory are in better order. I have much to ask the doctor about the geology of Kentucky. I have seen many caves, mammoth among the rest, I found two ferns at the last. My love to Allie and all. Very cordially yours, John Muir. I am in the woods on a hilltop with my back against a moss-clad log. I wish you could see my last evening's bedroom. My route will be through Kingston and Madisonville, Tennessee, and through Blairsville and Gainesville, Georgia. Please write me at Gainesville. I am terribly hungry. I hardly dare to think of home and friends. I was a few miles south of Louisville when I planned my journey. I spread out my map under a tree and made up my mind to go through Kentucky, Tennessee, and Georgia to Florida, thence to Cuba, thence to some part of South America. But it will be only a hasty walk. I am thankful, however, for so much. I will be glad to receive any advice from you. I am very ignorant of all things pertaining to this journey. Again, farewell. 
J. Muir. My love to the butlers. I am sorry I could not see John Spooner before leaving Madison. Cedar Keys, Florida, November 8, 1867. I am just creeping about, getting plants and strength after my fever. I wrote you a long time ago, but retained the letter, hoping to be able soon to tell you where you might write. Your letter arrived in Gainesville just a few minutes before I did. Somehow, your letters always come when most needed. I felt and enjoyed what you said of souls and solitudes, also that all of nature being yet found in man. I shall long for a letter from you. Will you please write me a long letter? Perhaps it will be safer to send it to New Orleans, Louisiana. I shall have to go there for a boat to South America. I do not yet know which point in South America I had better go to. What do you say? My means being limited, I cannot stay long anywhere. I would gladly do anything I could for Mr. Warren, but I fear my time will be too short to affect much. I did not see Miss Brooks because I found she was 130 miles from Savannah. I passed the Boswich Plantation and could not conveniently go back. I am very sorry about the mistake. I have written little, but you will excuse me. I am wearied. My most cordial love to all. End of section two.